CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. These are really difficult and uncomfortable questions without clear answers. I think most people now these days are, are seeing all these platforms as effectively forms of government, just in digitally native territory. It's unfortunate that not everyone is going to be able to benefit from a platform and that people get deplatformed. They're not going to go away, but to me, they're sort of a sign that platforms are so centrally important now to creators, whether we like it or not. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io. Hello, I'm Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. Here with Nadia Ekbal, author of the upcoming book, Working in Public. Talk about open source software projects. Thanks for joining us today, Nadia. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on the program because I think you're my first interview here at Coindesk, at least, with someone who understands Bitcoin, but isn't completely bullish on it. Wanted to start us off maybe with a quote from your upcoming book that really struck me. It said, open source developers write and publish their code in public. They may enjoy months, maybe years in the spotlight, but eventually popularity offers diminishing returns. If the value of maintaining code fails to outpace rewards, many of these developers quietly retreat into the shadows. So broadly speaking, I'm curious to hear from you if you think there are examples of projects that have overcome that issue, and if so, how, or if all projects are subject to that same qualm. Yeah, I've probably yet to find a project that wasn't at least faced with the challenge at some point. Um, Part of writing the book was to separate out and and come up with some terms to explain what we mean when we say like a project is undergoing this sort of stress or challenge from getting too many outside contributions, or maybe they're not experiencing it and it's because they're um, not getting enough users. And so I think it's a, a different story for every project, but my goal is sort of to create a little bit of an access for us to orient ourselves around and have conversations about why projects are running into those issues or not. How common do you think it is for a project to keep dozens of active contributors for more than a decade the way that Bitcoin has? Pretty uncommon. Um, I mean, it just depends on the type of project. So uh, one of the things that I outline is trying to come up with different, um, different classifying different project types. And so I have these sort of uh, four different types of projects that are based on whether you are experiencing high user growth or um, high contributor growth and found that, you know, different projects are going to experience those things based on a number of other factors. And so, yeah, there are, I think the, the ones that get the most attention are projects that have a lot of contributors um, that sustain themselves over time because they are sort of like these flashier, more interesting examples. Um, and then you sort of see like on the ones that get less attention are the ones that have maybe like one maintainer or a couple maintainers 
who are just sort of like doing the work, most of the work themselves. Wow. So, okay. One is small. I feel we can agree that one is small. How many contributors is big? How many is a lot compared to other projects? Uh, well, I guess it depends on how you define a contributor as well. So um, I, I've tried to sort of mentally separate out between people that I call active contributors who are more, you can think of like members of a club or an association or something like they're really kind of invested in the community. They're paying attention to what's happening with the project. Um, they are sort of planning to be there for a while. Uh, and then you have this like very long tail of uh, casual contributors. Sometimes they're called drive-by contributors. Um, I, I went with the term casual, meaning that they are just sort of like dropping in because they need something fixed. They have a more um, personal personal reason for being there. They're not displaying these pro-social attitudes. And, uh, and they might even really think of themselves as users who might need like a bug fixed or something like that. And so it really depends on how you count um, what a contributor is and whether that metric matters. Um, I, one of the arguments I make in the book is that contributor count is a good, is a useful way of comparing these more community-oriented projects that have high contributor growth. But for projects that just have one or a couple maintainers, it's it's almost like not even the right um, the right metric to look at. But yeah, I mean, on the high end, you could see projects that have hundreds or thousands of contributors, depending on how you're counting them. How do you think the role of the maintainer that you were talking about, that um, there's usually only a few of them, is evolving in 2020? I think it's that we're seeing the, because there are such high, there's such a high volume of interactions. Um, this is true actually for every type of project, even projects that do have a lot of contributors, um, that a maintainer is forced to think of themselves a little bit more as an air traffic controller. So they're getting a lot of inbound and they're trying to figure out how to field a lot of different requests. Historically, you can imagine um, when open source was less widely used, that most of the people that you see showing up a mailing list are someone that, someone that already has context for the project. Maybe you've seen them around on other projects and people are just a little bit more familiar with each other. Whereas today you could be getting just like really spammy um, pull requests or issues or um, contributions of any, any sort. I think in the way we, we typically talk about open sources, we should be trying to get like more contributors. Um, and, and so if there's too much work to do, let's find like more volunteers to pitch in or encourage that person to do it themselves or whatever. Um, whereas now I think the role of a maintainer is evolving more into like I have a limited amount of attention available and uh, I need to figure out how to prioritize the requests that are coming in. So less evangelism and more, uh, like you mentioned, air traffic control. Yeah. And, and I, th I still think anyone can use code and without really affecting a maintainer too badly. It's more about uh, fielding the contribution side of things. Of Once they are making requests of a maintainer, then they have to start making these trade-offs about their time. You compared freelance GitHub users uh, to Instagram influencers in your book, and I thought that was really shrewd. I was really intrigued by this. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that platform has become essential for certain kinds of remote work? Yeah, I, I think like open source is sort of a, like when you say the term open source is someone that isn't familiar with software, it's sort of just like an ugly term. And uh, as a result, I, th I think people don't pay enough attention to what developers are doing and how their behavior actually mirrors a lot of other creators on other social platforms. And so for if we are looking within the world of software and developers, um, GitHub is the clearest sort of platform that um, helps bring everyone together into one place. And so a lot of the effects that it's had on open source projects is similar to the effect that um, Instagram might have had or YouTube or wherever. In some ways, it's similar in that GitHub 
helps with the distribution aspects and sort of just like standardizing what does open source look like across lots of different projects, which before GitHub, you know, everyone just had a different way of running their own project. Um, whereas now it's a little bit more homogenized. I, I guess like the place where it's not really quite as similar um, is where I, I try to evaluate GitHub as a platform in terms of how it's helped creators with building status, displaying their reputation and using that to, I, I guess, like bluntly make money or be able to do their work uh, in the long term. And whereas I, th I think something like Instagram, for example, has done a much better job of that, even if you don't make money directly on Instagram, uh, you can demonstrate uh, very clearly and in a very legible way, like what your relative status is. Whereas in GitHub, it's a lot more difficult. If you go to someone's GitHub profile, it's not always really clear what they do or what they're known for. While GitHub is the platform for developers and has created that sort of aggregating effect, the downside of GitHub so far is that they haven't done as great of a job with the sort of reputation economy side of things. Yeah. And I mean, whenever we have the reputation economy, the thing that a lot of open source people are very concerned about is the concept of deplatforming, right? So I'm curious to hear from you if you think the continued reliance on platforms like GitHub or the increased importance of the reputation on such platforms could play into the balkanization of software engineering, or do you think that we're super far from that and we don't really need to worry about issues like that? Can you say a little more about how that compares to like other platforms, just so I understand the question? Yeah, so very briefly, if I understand correctly, a lot of Iranian developers lost access to some of the things that they used to be able to do on GitHub. So like having private repos, for example. And if I was a person who was a freelance fashion influencer, and I suddenly lost the ability to have DMs, that would significantly impact my ability to use that platform for work. So if we see sanctions being imposed onto global technologies that impact how it is that developers can use them based on their location or other kinds of affiliation, there were some developers who had issues that are based in Europe, but are of Iranian background, for example. So I'm wondering like, okay, we see more and more developers using common platforms. They used to do things their own way before GitHub. Now they have a common way. But the danger, or maybe it's not a danger, I'd very much uh, be curious to hear an argument against it, um, of having things the common way is that not everyone has common access to the common way, right? These are really difficult and uncomfortable questions without clear answers. I think most people now these days are, are seeing all of these platforms as effectively forms of government just in digitally native territory rather than defined by geographic boundaries. It's unfortunate that not everyone is going to be able to benefit from a platform and that people get deplatformed. And I think like we should continue to push on those questions and ask them out loud. And yeah, they're not going to go away. But to me, they're sort of a sign that platforms are so centrally important now to creators, whether we like it or not. And so, yeah, I mean, similarly that, you know, the U.S. has immigration restrictions that I might personally not agree with and a lot of other people don't. But there are things that we have to sort of like actively push on and try to figure out. Uh, so I guess I guess I'm, like there's no like clear solution as to where like where do those people go? And there are always going to be alternatives for people that are in special circumstances. Uh, but it is sort of these like, I guess, just like active major governance type questions that we should be talking about more openly in the next few decades. Yeah. So we know that GitHub is a very, very important platform. Um, and you mentioned another platform that for me, I never heard of before that is usually popular among JavaScript developers, Node Package Manager, uh, you called it. 
And I'm curious when we think about comparing GitHub or GitLab and or um, NMP, if you notice similarities between the types of projects and people's engaged or were there different trade-offs or different reasons that they would use those platforms? Yeah, I would think of NPM and similar package managers as uh, the package managing ecosystem sort of runs parallel to GitHub. Um, and who knows, like somewhere somewhere in the not too distant future, they might just end up overlapping. Um, I believe NPM actually was acquired by GitHub uh, maybe a couple months ago. But like it, when I think about the role of package management in an open source developer's mind, it's sort of like parallel to GitHub. So package managers are these places where you can find and download uh, libraries or modules or it, you can think of it as sort of like a library and you have a library card to have access to, say, like NPM. And from there, you can like download and access whatever anybody, anybody uploads. And so package managers are a really great way to understand the modularization that is taking place in open source and has been in recent years, um, especially driven by JavaScript, because any, any developer can just sort of like upload their own small thing that someone else can download and use. So it, JavaScript, for example, in, in this particular example, uh, makes it easy for developers to write software using lots of different components. Um, so you can imagine some kinds of software are much more monolithic and where uh, software is tightly coupled together. Whereas like the trend in more recent years, especially driven by JavaScript, has been more towards uh, instead of thinking about this one like giant block of stone, you have a, a tower made out of Legos. Uh, and so NPM gives you access to like all the different Legos that you might want to like pick up and put into your project. And so it's it's really, really cool from like a creative standpoint, because it means that you can really fine tune your project to look exactly the way that you want it to look. Um, and if you slide out one of those Legos, it, the whole thing doesn't come apart. Uh, the trade off being that it has now created these sort of dependency management issues where, you know, now now instead of relying on a couple people, the other developers code, you might be relying on like hundreds or thousands of people's uh, projects and you don't even know who these people are. So it just makes the system much more uh, tightly interconnected and, and complicated. Hey, listeners, Crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies. It's also one of the most cost effective ways with the normal three and a half percent credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. 
It sounds like there's more possibilities today than there's ever been, but that none of those possibilities come without trade-offs in, in terms of the security of the product or even um, how it could be used or, or access to it. You mentioned in your book briefly the importance of evangelism in community projects. I know there are some software projects or, or languages that people are really, really passionate about. Um, what do you think distinguishes a healthy evangelism from the type of dreaded shilling of vaporware that gets other developers to mock each other? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess I feel like it's no different than any other creative project or even like a startup that, um, I mean, we all kind of see examples of startups that have raised way too much money and are sort of doing the like flashy marketing thing. I won't name names, but um, we can all probably think of an example in our heads. And whereas there are other types of companies that seem to emerge out of nowhere and are like extremely cultish and they have this like rabid fan base that is just like really pumping them up and um, they're gaining traction with their initial base through word of mouth. And so if those are two sort of like extremes, I think like an open source project is really no different. Like I often try to compare an open source project to like a company, for example, uh, just in the sense of like, much like a company, an open source project needs to find users that stay relevant if they're trying to make like a go of becoming a popular project. So yeah, I mean, the, the ones that are doing it well are the ones that are maybe the, the developer already has a bit of a reputation. Um, they've Maybe they've been sort of writing about it in public or releasing small bits of it or even developing parts of it in public and building an active fan base for whatever they're creating, uh, which is a little bit different from, um, you often see this from companies, for example, that are open sourcing a, a project where it's sort of just like, use this thing, we're telling you to use this thing, uh, which is just not really how the world works. Once upon a time, Instagram, I think, had a very, very strong community and subculture. It's been a bit less now that it's half the planet. But um, I'm trying to think about other software projects that aren't uh, straight cryptocurrency, the, the making of new money types that inspired a similar kind of devotion or participation. In, in terms of just like maybe like bigger examples that people might be familiar with, um, Rust and Node are both basically this. Ryan Dahl started Node.js and really was just sort of like, here's an idea and presented it at a conference and people got really excited and taken by it and it grew into you know, being basically what it, what it is now. But people were looking for ways to use JavaScript on both the front end and the back end. And uh, so it was just like an idea that had really good timing. And yeah, maybe similarly with Rust and just like sy systems programming is like not something that is, it's not, it just doesn't usually have, I guess, like a very like friendly brand to it. Or um, you don't usually think of it as having like, I don't know, like a, a community kind of feel to it. Rust has, I think, continue grows is growing and continues to grow um because it has the it has a feeling of something new that other other similar projects of a site maybe don't have what did you learn while writing this book you're much more familiar with, with software than i am but i'm sure that in the process of writing and researching even you found things you didn't expect i'll, I'll say like over the course of just doing research around open source communities before the book was even a thing the biggest shift in my own thinking came from uh, starting starting with the observation that a lot of open source maintainers seem to be under-resourced. And then initial hypothesis being, okay, they need more contributors. And then having this moment of like, oh, actually, sometimes getting more contributors can is, is the source of maintainers' problems because it's just creating a lot of noise for them. Um, so that was like a really big switch to flip my head of saying, oh, maybe there are actually different types of open source projects, some of which benefit from contributors and others 
which don't. Okay, well, what is the difference between those? And then kind of just like cascading from there. The biggest shift that I felt in writing the book itself was probably just like, I mean, I initially set out to write about just open source and I felt like I just had like a bunch of learnings and that I just want to like catalog into a large document. Um, I wasn't even sure if it would be a book at the time. Um, Over the course of writing it, I started seeing all these parallels between what's happening in open source with what's happening to the world at large. And part of it is that some of those things were happening like while I was writing the book of just sort of the world going from these very, very highly public uh, interactions on social platforms to this new development of quieter web where we see this resurgence of group messaging and group chats, um, podcasts, newsletters. Clubhouse recently might be like an example of this. So just seeing that like a lot of the things that open source developers are experiencing around how do I manage these high volume interactions is also something that we're all collectively experiencing and trying to find solutions to. And so integrating that aspect of open source developers being a lot like other types of creators was something that happened while I was writing. Um, I know it will vary dramatically from project to project, but I'm curious if you have any guidelines or thoughts about how it is that you evaluate a healthy project versus signs or ways to measure an unhealthy aspect or a project that's not growing the way it should. Yeah, I outlined some of this stuff in the book. The term healthy, I guess I started just by like drilling down on that a little bit. And at at a highest level, you might think of it as is a project being actively developed or not. And so there are a lot of ways you could take that or or measure it. Um, I think a lot of people tend to look at, again, contributor count as a measure of project health, but I don't think that's actually the right metric because if you are a project that has like one or two maintainers and you see on their GitHub repository that they've had like 2,000 contributors, let's say at the extreme, like you know, a, a couple of maintainers and like thousands of contributors is actually like a maybe not a good thing for that maintainer. And so I, I tried looking at a different type of metric, uh, which was work done. So looking at how many pull requests are being merged or um, how many issues are being closed, because I think like measuring activity is maybe like a better, a, just a better way of thinking about project health. Of course, that breaks down a little bit more into some projects don't just don't need to be as act- actively developed as others. And so I was also just looking at things like maintainer responsiveness. So maybe your project doesn't get a lot of issues open on it, but it's perfectly stable and people are using it and they're happy. But like if, if an issue does come up, uh, is a maintainer responding to that? Those are some of the top level things that come to mind. I do touch on a li- uh, very, very briefly in, in the book at some point of just talking about the, the things that interest me around these kinds of questions is always like, what is the style of development? And so um, Bitcoin being this this style of development that is much more thoughtful and, well, maybe thoughtful is other way, but just like stable and uh, moving more slowly because they're trying to prioritize stability is just a very different development style from trying to uh, incorporate lots and lots of different kinds of features and like allow people to like have this highly customizable platform. And so I know that that difference can spark a lot of debate with people. Um, any, and in any sort of software project, there's sort of the, like, you know, this trade-off in philosophy of do we accept fewer, fewer things and fewer changes in an open source project, but it's because we're trying to keep the project really stable. Or do we try to bring in lots and lots of changes and get lots of different types of people contributing uh, and experimenting with the platform, which might come at the trade-off of stability and security? And so, yeah, I think they're just like two different ways of, of doing it. But there's a, there's a project out there for everyone. That is very, very fair. And I agree with you. I'm glad to hear, at least, don't agree, I have no expertise in the subject. I'm glad to hear you say 
that there are trade-offs and that both approaches and different circumstances could be the correct thing for that time. And it's not really clear unless you know what your intention is and, and what the project's about, whether it's good to have that stability or whether it's better to move faster. There's like just different perspectives on that. I'm curious to hear, are there any other software projects that you can think of that are so controversial to talk about? Um, probably a lot. So I won't talk about them. <laughs> but <laughs> it feels like there's a lot of drama. So That's fair. Okay, so it's not the, the drama is not unique. Definitely not. And the differences in perspectives on how to approach it are not unique. Actually, there's like one line in the book where I'm just like, I've learned anything. It's that developers have opinions. I have, I've been told so many things that are definitely absolutely true that are all conflicting each other. So at this point, I'm, it's kind of, it, like, so I, I, I think I sort of enjoyed being a little bit on the outskirts in this way of like, I, I really try when I'm talking to developers or trying to like learn about their projects, like I, I really do want to position myself as fairly neutral because I'm just trying to like understand what's going on. That's all I've ever really cared about. And so I, I don't want to overly take opinions of like, this thing is right and this thing's wrong, but more like, here's what I'm seeing. And so like, here's what I think is happening based on an aggregation of what's happening across projects. Because one thing I've just heard from a lot of open source developers is like they don't get a lot of exposure outside of their own language ecosystems. Um, crypto might be a little different because like folks come from some other background before crypto. So they have at least like maybe like some other parallel ecosystem to compare it to. Uh, but I think like a lot of developers that just appreciate getting other perspectives that might not be their own um, or, you know, thinking like, oh, gosh, I thought I was the only person dealing with this issue. But it turns out it's really, really common and widespread. Um, and so I think that's what I try to do a lot of is just sort of like expose what's happening on a, a higher level. Yeah, I really, really enjoyed what you wrote up. I'm curious if there's anything you want to leave the audience with in terms of where they can get your book or anything that you're anything else you're working on that you want people to know about. Yeah, no, I you can buy the book uh, on Amazon. It's called Working in Public, the Making and Maintenance of Open Source Software. And yeah, I hope you read it and enjoy it. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your perspective today, Nadia. And thank you to everyone at home for joining. Once again, this is Coindesk reporter Lee Quinn. For more interviews and insights, check out coindesk.com. Take care, everybody. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 